I have a very exciting announcement for you today. With the help of the Almighty and with your dedicated listenership, I am happy and proud and eager to announce that, please God, next year we will once again have a Parsha podcast. As you know, this is year seven of the Parsha podcast, and we only have, after this week, four more weeks to finish the whole cycle. It went by so fast. And we enjoyed it every week, almost every week. Almost every week we enjoyed it. But I'm very excited to announce that I'm putting the final touches on the theme for next year. Of course, you know, every year we have a theme. The A&Q, the Exquisite Insight, the Raising Your Intelligence, IQ. But I'm putting on the final touches for next year's theme. I hope, please God, to unveil it next week with the help of the Almighty. But what do you say? What an accomplishment. We're, we're about to finish year seven of the Parsha podcast, and we already have plans for year eight. What an incredible, incredible, momentous day. What a celebration, a celebration of Torah. What a joy to do this every week with y'all. Now, Parsha's Tisetse starts off with one of the most perplexing laws of the Torah. When you go out to war and you are successful and you defeat, you vanquish your enemies and you have some prisoners of war. And amongst the prisoners, you see a beautiful captive woman and you are desirous of her and you want to marry her. So we have a, a captured enemy. And we have this captive woman, and she is so alluring, and you are so desirous of her, and you want to marry her. This is, of course, a very unusual place to find a wife. It's not exactly how you would draw it up, but that's how our Parsha begins. And there's a stunning comment in Rashi. This is on the second verse of the Parsha. It says, the Torah only speaks against the Yetzirah. So those words are a bit ambiguous. It's not clear what he means by that. But then he adds, because if the Almighty does not permit this woman, you will marry her in sin. But if you do marry her, Rashi continues, you will in the end hate her. And that's why right after this episode, the maiden episode, the opening episode of our Parsha, the opening mitzvah of our Parsha, of many, there are many mitzvahs, of course, in our Parsha, right afterwards you have the man who has two wives and he hates one of them. And that's not a coincidence, Rashi tells us. If you marry this this woman that you see in battle, and you take her as a captive and you marry her, it's a bad idea because you will ultimately hate her. And the children that you will bear from this woman, from your wife, they will turn into a ben sorer umora, a wayward and rebellious son. So the Torah is not in favor of this union. You will hate her. It's a bad idea. It will lead to problematic offspring. But the Torah does not prohibit it, Rashi tells us. Because if the Torah does prohibit it, then you'll do it anyhow. You'll marry her in violation of the Torah's prohibition. And the Torah only gives us laws, Rashi implies, that are feasible. And therefore, this law, would it to exist in the counter factual world where it does exist, that you were prohibited from marrying this woman, you would violate it, and therefore the Torah permits it. Even though, of course, it forewarns us that it's a bad idea, and there are some dire consequences. You'll hate her, and you will end up with a wayward and rebellious son spawned from this union. But the verse continues that there is some protocol you have to follow. You have to bring her to your house, You have to give her a haircut, and she has to allow her nails to grow, and she has to remove the garment of captivity, and she has to sit in your house for a month, and she has to cry over her parents, her father, her mother for a month, and then you can be with her, you can marry her, and she will be your wife. What's happening over here? So we have a man going to war, a Jewish man in war, and it's a successful war, and we win. The good guys win. And you have some prisoners of war. And you spot amongst the prisoners of war a really beautiful woman, and you want to marry her. 
That's okay, the Torah tells us, provided that you follow a certain protocol. Namely, you take her home, and you give her a haircut, and her nails have to grow a bit, and you have to remove the garments of her captivity, and she has to sit in your house and cry, bewail over her parents, her family, for a month. And then, after that's all done, you can marry her, she's your wife, and you could live happily ever after, even though the Torah foretells that you will hate her and you will have children that you're not so proud of from her. What's happening over here? So Rashi tells us that this whole protocol of removing her garments of captivity, the enemies of Israel were told, they would take their daughters during war and they would beautify them and put them on very gorgeous, very pretty, very attractive clothing. Why? Because that would cause the enemies maybe to be distracted and to not perform as well in battle or maybe to marry them off to these enemy invading soldiers. And therefore, the Torah is not interested. It's not really desirous of this union. And therefore, it's going to take steps to allow you to reconsider and say, well, is she that beautiful? Maybe it's just the garments. And now she's got a haircut. It's not as attractive as it was earlier. And her nails are a bit long. And she's sitting in your house and you're constantly bumping into her. And she's crying. And that will help you maybe consider the fact that you shouldn't marry her. After all, all the Jewish women are not so complaining. The Torah is not desirous of this union, Rashi tells us. And it's trying to drive a wedge between this Jewish warrior and the beautiful captive. You know, she was so stunning when you saw her in battle, but maybe now she's not as attractive. She's not dressing as provocatively. It's not so new. You've seen her for a month and she's complaining and she's crying. And you can see the clear contrast between the joyous Jewess and this sad, this depressed, this crying captive. And this is perhaps a way that you may reconsider what you want to do. That's how our Parsha starts off. We have a protocol for marrying a woman who comes from the enemies that you conquer in battle. And of course, there's a lot of different ways to try to understand what's happening here, a lot of different angles. But I want to focus on Rashi. Rashi, that we mentioned earlier, the second verse of our Parsha, 21.11. Rashi is highlighting the fact that you are allowed to marry such a woman, even though she comes from the enemy. She's not from our nation. And there is a way, there is a carve-out, there is an allowance, there's an exception where you are allowed to marry this woman. And Rashi explains that the Torah only speaks in opposition to the Yetzirah. Because if God did not permit it, you would marry her in sin. You would violate that law. So first of all, this line, this ambiguous line of Rashi, where he says that the Torah only speaks in opposition to the Yetzirah. This is a very interesting comment in Rashi. And you can read it in a more minimalist way by saying that, well, the Torah only speaks, the Torah only governs against the Yetzirah. And when the Yetzirah is ungovernable, because you would violate it even if it was prohibited, well, then the Torah doesn't speak. That's a minimalist way to read what Rashi is saying. There's more of a maximalist way of reading it, and that is, take the words of Rashi and say, the Torah only speaks in opposition to the Yetzahara. The entire purpose of the Torah is to oppose the Yetzahara. The Talmud tells us a very instructive line. God says to the Jewish people, I created the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, and I created the Torah as its antidote. If you had to distill to crystallize what is the core objective of Torah? Why do we have Torah? Why is this 
something that we're so committed to? What is the purpose of Torah? Why did the Almighty give it to us? Here we have in this one line of Rashi, and of course it's explicated elsewhere in the literature, we have an answer. The Torah is only speaking in opposition of the Yitzhah And we have a definition in the Talmud. Torah is an antidote to the Yitzhah to the venom of the Yitzhah And this is an idea that we've spoken about in the past, but it's very helpful, very important to always revisit it. The Yitzhah is the serpent of Genesis, the primordial serpent that Adam and Eve had to contend with. And as I just tell us, that the serpent disappears from the storyline, but he doesn't disappear from the human experience. After Adam's sin, the serpent is still present, but now it has, so to speak, bitten humanity, and it infiltrated humanity, and the venom of the serpent now exists, now courses within us. Ever since the sin of Adam, we have been stricken with the venom of the Yetzirah, of the serpent. When Adam was warned not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, God says, the day that you eat it, you will die. Now, he didn't die that day, but he became condemned to die because at that moment, the serpent and its venom inhabited Adam. And the antidote, the only antidote, is Torah. In fact, this is a little bit in the weeds, but one of the theories on the sin of Adam is that Adam actually knew exactly what he was doing. He knew it was a terrible idea to consume from the forbidden fruit. And he did it nonetheless. And the reason why he did it is because Adam knew that there's something called Torah, and he really desired it. He coveted Torah. And he knew that the only way that he can earn Torah, that humanity can become recipients of the Almighty's Torah, is if he does this sin. Why? Because once he does the sin, now he has the venom of the Yetzirah, of the serpent within him. And there's only one antidote. And that antidote is Torah. And thus, Adam, so to speak, forced God's hand. He forced God, so to speak, to give us the Torah, to give humanity the Torah, because otherwise there is an imbalance, there is an asymmetry in the world. There's no free will. So therefore, he deliberately imbibed the venom of the Yitzhara, knowing that it would necessarily trigger a certain balancing of the scales. Now the Almighty, so to speak, is bound to give us the antidote in order to make free will possible. And therefore, Adam, with full knowledge of the consequences, he chose to change the calculus of the world to say, I want a Yetzirah within me, and I want the ammunition of Torah to help me win that battle. And that's why he did what he did. He's the one, and his sin is the event that ensured that we will get Torah. That's a mandatory consequence of Adam's sin. If you think about it, in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. What is Rosh Hashanah all about? Well, it's the coronation of God. Some people think, erroneously, that Rosh Hashanah is the day that marks the creation of the world. Our sources say otherwise. Our sources say that the world was created on the 25th day of Elul. And Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Tishrei, is day 6. And that's the day that marks the creation of Adam. And thus, of course, we have a change in existence. God gained a subject. And therefore, God became king on Rosh Hashanah, on the first one. Because absent a nation, there is no king. Thus, the creation of Adam is the creation of a nation, so to speak, of a subject for God. And thus, Rosh Hashanah celebrates not only the creation of mankind, of Adam, but also the coronation of God. And thus we have the recreation of humanity every Rosh Hashanah and the re-coronation of God as king every Rosh Hashanah as well.
which is why this theme of the sovereignty of God is so central to the prayers, to the mitzvahs, to the themes in general of Rosh Hashanah. But now we discover, maybe this is another element of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah was also the day that Adam sinned. The same day that Adam was created, the Talmud tells us, that was the same day that he ate from the forbidden fruit. And thus, Rosh Hashanah, we got a Yetzirah, an evil inclination. And that too happened on this day. Rosh Hashanah marks the day where the venom of the serpent began to operate within humanity. And that's the day that Adam was condemned to die. And that's the day that also guaranteed that eventually humanity receives Torah. Humanity gets the antidote, the necessary antidote for the serpent's venom. So all this perhaps is hinted to in Rashi, when Rashi says this line, the Torah was only given for us to oppose the Yitzhara. But regarding the content of Rashi, there's an incredible idea here. A man goes to war and he sees a captive woman and he's desirous of her and he wants to marry her. And really the Torah would really love to prohibit this union, this marriage. And as is, it does its best to discourage this union. She has to take a month to make herself less attractive to him. And there's the contrast between her and the joyous Jewesses. And he's warned, you'll hate her and you'll have a wayward and rebellious son. But the Torah does not ban this union entirely. And the reason why, because if it does ban it, then the man will marry her against the wishes of the Torah. This is a situation where it's not possible to overcome. Amid the passions of war, the ferocity of battle, and there's this beautiful, seductive woman, self-control, our sages tell us, Torah is telling us, it's not possible. And therefore, something that really ought to be prohibited in any other circumstance, it's permitted. During wartime, the, the testosterone is running haywire. I remember hearing about a study where they measured the testosterone of men before and after handling a weapon. And just, just handling a weapon caused the testosterone levels to skyrocket. In war, there's violence. And the people living on an edge, they say about the people that came back from World War I and World War II for that matter, that some soldiers, of course, a lot of them dealt with PTSD and all the terrors that they experienced. But some of them, I read, their life never had that same meaning they, they kind of were never able to recapture that experience of living in the heat of battle. There's something crazy. Of course, most of us don't know what this is all about. But a Jewish man, we're told, is, is put into the situation. He's a warrior. He's in battle. And he sees this woman and it's beyond the capacity of his self-control to overcome. And this joust with the Yetzirah is unwinnable. And the Torah only speaks in opposition to the Yetzirah, and, and here it just cannot say anything against it because it's not possible. And therefore, the Torah carves out this somewhat dubious loophole. Now, as an aside, there's a very valuable takeaway from this principle. When the Torah understands that we cannot follow a given directive, it does not give said directive. And that can tell us, we can prove from that, we can deduce from that, that all the directives that it does give, those are doable. Only here in this very unique situation of a man in war and the beautiful captive woman, only here is self-control, is overcoming the Yetzirah not possible. But every other time, when the Torah does give restrictions, those are all doable. I think it's comforting to know that here and here alone, the war, 
with the Eight Sahara is unwinnable. And therefore the Torah says, okay, well, here I cannot govern. There is an axiom that we say that God only gives you a challenge that you can overcome, that you can withstand. Here we see an example of a challenge that you would not be able to withstand. You cannot overcome. And therefore, God doesn't give you that challenge. It's not prohibited. But the things that are prohibited, that in itself is evidence that God Almighty, He's testifying, so to speak, that it is possible to do. If you look at the mitzvahs, there are many mitzvahs that are very difficult to only eat kosher, to keep all the myriad laws of Shabbos, to not speak a word of Lashon Hara, to not take revenge against someone who wronged you, to love God, to fear God, to emulate God, to love your fellow as yourself, and so on. Many mitzvahs in the Torah are difficult. They may be difficult, but they are doable. And there's another point here. The Torah understands that in in this context, resisting this woman is not possible. And if it was prohibited, people would violate this law. And therefore, the Torah does not ban it. And you're allowed to marry her. But when does this desire get consummated? Read the verses again. What do the verses say? You go to war and you see this beautiful captive woman and you're desirous of her. You can marry her. But but when is the marriage happening? So the verse says, you bring her home. Home? Who's home now? There's a war going on. Who's home? When the war's over, that's when you go home. And even once you go home, she has to be there for a month, we're told. And she has to get a haircut that's less flattering. And she has to allow her nails to grow and to remove the more appealing garb and to fetch and cry for a month. And then you marry her. You have to wait a month before you can consummate. Not you. This Jewish warrior has to wait a month before he can consummate his desires. So if you think about it, there's a little bit of a contradiction. Read the verses again and then read Rashi. Rashi's telling us something very surprising. Well, the Torah only speaks in opposition to the Eitzahara. And here, well, it's not possible to overcome it. And if the Torah banned it, you do it anyhow. And therefore, we have to capitulate to the Eitzahara. And you have to be allowed to marry her. But when are you going to marry her? When the war is over, and you go home, and you take her with you. And you go through this whole protocol of changing her, her garb, and... and uh giving her a haircut, and and she's complaining for 30 days and crying for 30 days. How is that fulfilling the will of the Sahara? The law is written in a way that the Sahara is not immediately satisfied. Now, this question is not my question. It's, it's featured in the Tosfos commentary, to the book of Kiddushin, page 22a. It says, wait a minute. We're told that this is a, an exception to the rule. Normally the Torah tells us you have to overcome the Yitzhara, but here you can't. Here it's just too hard. It's unwinnable. It's not feasible. You cannot expect men in battle to be, to have the strength of character, to have the fortitude to overcome this. And therefore, you give in. But this is, not, this is not called giving in. What an unusual setup. There's a war, and the, the Jewish warriors are confronted with this seductive, captive woman. And the passions are flaring up, and the testosterone is going crazy. And the desire is so intense, it's beyond the realm of possibility to resist. So you give in. But is this giving in? You wait. 
until the war ends. And you bring her home. And even then, you wait a month. And she follows all the protocol. And then you marry her. How does this address the Yetzirah? So the Tosfos himself gives an answer. And he says that, well, if you are allowed to marry her, even if you cannot consummate that desire, that alone should suppress the Yetzirah. You could wait a little bit. And it gives the famous line featured in lots of Torah literature that there's a difference between someone who has bread in his basket versus someone who doesn't. You know, two people are starving. One of them has lunch. You're not as worried about it. You have it. You could eventually you'll you'll open up your your basket and enjoy your lunch. And that itself quells and suppresses your feelings of of need right now. So if there's something which is really desirous and it's prohibited at the moment, but it will be permissible in sometime in the future, that subdues your desire. That's what the Tosfos says. But there's a second idea. This is really what I wanted to say. Everything till now is just the introduction. As they just tell us that one of the worst characteristics that a person can have is to be lazy. To be lazy and to be stagnant and unmotivated and unproductive. To just be like earth. You know, we, our bodies, we're told, comes from the earth. You put a body in the earth and the body decomposes and becomes earth. God created Adam, earth from the ground. And earth is stagnant. It takes a lot of energy to move it. You want to excavate. You got to work really, really hard to move the earth. It's immobile unless something comes and changes that. That is the default state of humanity. We're stagnant and we have to overcome laziness. Even when we have big aspirations and big plans, sometimes we delay them and we, we push it off. We procrastinate. And it's really hard to become energetic and productive and accomplished. Nevertheless, our sages tell us that there is an appropriate time for laziness. There's a good time to be lazy. There's a very productive laziness. When it comes to the agenda of the Yetzirah, when he wants you to engage in some matter of lust or desire or forbidden fruit. In that case, ah, be lazy. Tell the Yetzirah, this is a good plan and I understand your position on this matter. And I agree. I capitulate. But let's do it tomorrow. I'm, I'm too tired for this. Ah, I'll get around to it eventually. The Yetzirah has almost a magical way of engendering desires within us. And it can make us want to do things that are bad, objectively bad, are harmful, are detrimental, things that we will later regret, things that we will later become ashamed of, things that will cause us suffering in the future. One of the ways that you can resist and fight back, one of the sharpest tools in your repertoire is laziness. Yeah, we're, we're totally in. Uh, let's schedule it for the fall. The Yetzirah doesn't work like that. It doesn't say, oh, put it on the to-do list, put it in the back burner, we'll get to it eventually. The Yetzirah, it could be a fiery, passionate desire, but that doesn't last. It's like when you in the summer, my kids like to make little bonfires. And of course, to build a bonfire where you start with little twigs and then you have, you know, some slightly thicker twigs and make a little pyramid where you have the big logs. They, they don't want that. They want to just squirt the, um, what's that thing? The highly flammable fuel, the lighter fluids. That was called lighter fluid. They just want to squirt that and just cause a big, big flaming fire. That's all they want. That's the Yetzirah. It's this flash in the pan of fire that just doesn't have a strong base. It's not real. It's, it's, it's just 
illusory. That's what it is. And yes, it's an intimidating, flaming, fierce fire, but a minute later, you got nothing. Just, you know, some heat. It's not real. So you put something on a to-do list. I'll get to it eventually. We'll do it tomorrow. And yeah, I'm totally in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, sure. W- where do I sign? I'm, I'm totally capitulating. But we'll, we'll give into the desire. We'll, we'll execute it. We'll implement it tomorrow. That is the way to diffuse the Yitzhara. The Talmud tells us the power of the Yitzhara is only what the eye sees. What you can't see tomorrow. You can't even see yesterday. What you see is right now, the present. Tomorrow, that is not the domain of the Yitzhara. In fact, the whole notion of the future is a very helpful thing when it comes to battling the Yitzhara. If you think about behavior, but project yourself to the future, how will I feel after this? How will I feel tomorrow if I adhere to the wishes of the Yitzhara today? Will I respect myself tomorrow for the choice that the Yitzhara wants me to take today? These sorts of questions where you project yourself to the future, not what your eye sees right now, but to the future, that is one of the best ways to repel the advances of the Yitzhara. And of course, the ultimate example of that, what's the ultimate tomorrow? It's remembering the true destiny of humanity. There's a time tomorrow in the future where the body and soul will go their separate ways. And how much excitement do you have for the Yitzhara's agenda when you have that to consider? That's tomorrow. That's the future. And our sages emphasize that if you remember the fact that you are mortal and you are not going to last here forever, and there is a ticking clock that is steadily getting smaller and that's just the time you have here and that's it. And then you move on to the real world. Your soul goes to its source and your body goes to its source. You remember that. You remember the day of death. You consider three things, where you came from, where you're going to, and before whom you will give an account and a reckoning to. You'll never sin can defang the Yitzhara. So this notion of, of tomorrow, it's a very powerful weapon against the Yitzhara. Stall tactics. Delay. I'm agreeing. I totally subscribe to your agenda, Mr. Monsieur Yitzhara. But let's implement it tomorrow. Yes, but later. That diffuses and deflates the answer takes the air out of it. And that's easier to do than to have a categorical rejection. Of course, this is true even here. The Torah permits it. And Rashi says the Torah is only speaking against the answer. And what does it say? <laughs> what does it say? The Torah only speaks against the answer and says, give in. That doesn't sound like speaking against the answer. But then you read the protocol, give in. But how do you give in? Wait till the war's over, bring her home, follow all these steps. And that's how you speak against the Sahara. And that maybe will restore you to your senses. And of course, this is a principle that's true in this battle by these Jewish warriors seeing the beautiful captive woman. But this is, of course, a tactic that can help us every single day. How do we relate to our Yetzirah? You delay and you stall. In general, I would say, if you ever have a dilemma in your life and you have uncertainty about how to proceed and you're not sure if your desired course is correct, sometimes it's very helpful to mull it over. Think about it. Wait. Delay. It's possible that the Yetzirah is guiding you. But you know that after some Moments, its power begins to dissipate. That little flash in the pan gets extinguished. By tomorrow, you'll be able to evaluate the situation in a more clear-headed fashion. Should I send that uh, 
biting text? That biting email? Should I say that snide comment? They deserve it. They have it coming. You may have an urge to react impulsively, but it's possible that that's the agenda of the Sahara. You don't want to listen to that. You don't want the venom to, to govern your behavior. You should be maybe a bit cautious. You don't want to play right into its hand. Impulsivity right now where you can see the present that is invariably a marker of the Sahara. Wait until tomorrow. That is almost a magical reframe. Changes everything. You hear a lot of people saying it's kind of in vogue to say you have to live in the present. You have to Live right now, in the here and now. I don't like that framing. Because it it could be a good thing to be mindful, to be aware of your behavior. But it's very important to think about the consequences of your behavior. Who is the wise one? He who sees what will be born out of current decisions, the Mishnah tells us. What does it mean to be wise? It means to not just think about the here and now, to think about the consequences. Think about tomorrow. So, but there is value, of course, in being present, being aware of what of what you're doing and, and to be thoughtful about your behavior and your choices. The Eitzhara wants you to act right now. I'll tell you, even though, of course, all such questions should be referred to professionals, but one of the ways that the experts advise People had to calm someone down. You know, someone's on the bridge and they want to jump and their life is so terrible and so miserable. So one of the arguments you could say is, listen, you could always do it tomorrow. The bridge will still be there tomorrow. The infrastructure is not that bad. The HR wants you to do terrible things to yourself. And he wants you to act impulsively. Just say, hey, make an argument. Listen, you're not sure there's the right decision, right? Because otherwise you would have jumped already, right? So, okay, well, maybe we can think about, we can always do it tomorrow, right? You you can't undo it if you jump now, but tomorrow you could still, uh, if you you think it's the right decision, you can still make that decision tomorrow. Don't just throw in the towel now. That is a classic delay tactic. The impulse may subside. The Yetzirah is described in our literature as a wily king. He's sharp and he's fearsome and it may seem to be all-powerful. But even this wily king has an Achilles heel, has a glaring weakness. All you say is yes, but tomorrow that diffuses it. Yes, I agree. I'm in. I endorse your position. We'll just do it tomorrow. And that's a way to outlast the enemy. Rashi tells us the Torah only speaks in opposition to the Yitzhara. What does it say? It says this woman is permitted in at least a month. This is how you speak in opposition to the Yitzhara. You'll notice the Parsha begins with a war. You go out to war against your enemy. The parsha also ends with a war. The parsha begins, of course, with the enemy captive, the beautiful woman. And the final three verses of our parsha, chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, we read about the war against Amalek. Now, it's quite interesting that the sages tell us, the sources tell us, the both of these, even though they're talking about physical wars, they're also referring to wars against our spiritual foes. The Zohar says, when you go out to war against your enemy, who's your real enemy? It's the Yetzirah. Moreover, regarding Amalek, which is the enemy at the end of the Parsha, the Zohar also says that this is an allusion to the Yetzirah. So we have a parasha that starts off with a war, and we, we don't, we're not told who the enemy is, but we're told about this whole episode where you have this captive and what you do and how you approach it. 
And this, our sages tell us, it's, it's hinting towards a certain war against the Yetzirah. She says the Torah is only speaking against the Yetzirah. And Amalek, which is the nation we're told to completely and utterly annihilate at the end of the parsha, that, our sages tell us, is also referring to the war against the Yetzirah on, on one level, one dimension. Now, I looked at my notes from last year's podcast and last year, I, I mentioned this pattern, and I contrasted the two. And I said, well, the first war, you can't win. And the last war, you have you have to win. It's imperative that you thoroughly annihilate Amalek. This year, I'm saying the opposite. I changed my mind. Well, or there's another dimension of how you can view this. I want to suggest that the beginning of the Parsha and the end of the Parsha are saying the same thing. How do you defeat Amalek? So we're told, two times in the Torah, there was a war against Amalek. And in both instances, the same tactic was deployed. When Jacob was about to encounter his brother, this is in Parshish Vayishlach, in Genesis, we're closer to the upcoming Genesis than the Genesis of this cycle. Jacob had a war, an overnight struggle against the angel of Asaph. You remember the story. He was alone, and a man, a man, so to speak, struggled with him until the morning. And the man saw that he cannot overcome him, and he dislocated his hip, and he gave him a blessing, renamed him Israel. How does Jacob win that conflict? He doesn't pummel the angel of Esav, of course, Esav is the grandfather of Amalek. So when we say the, the angel of Esav, it means the, the most potent force of Esav, and that is exemplified by Amalek. It's embodied by Amalek. Jacob did not defeat and overcome this enemy. He just outlasted it. It's a victory by attrition. The other side will weaken by mourning, and then you'll win. Jacob waited. He was just... We're waiting until the force diminishes, and then he, and then he wins. And then there was a second war against Amalek. This is in Parshas B'Shalach at the end of B'Shalach, Exodus chapter seventeen. Amalek comes and attacks Israel, the nation, and Moshe hires Joshua. He nominates Joshua to go lead the Jewish forces. And he tells him, this is in chapter 17, verse 9. He tells him when to go to war. One of the most interesting verses in the Torah. Vayomer Moshe Yehoshua, Moshe said to Joshua, go select warriors and go make a war against or go fight back against Amalek. Machar, tomorrow. It's an amazing thing. The nation is being attacked. They're ambushed by Amalek. And Moshe instructs Joshua to go wage war to launch a counterattack tomorrow. You got to get your sleep. Got to have a good breakfast. What is going on over here? And of course, everything has been understood on multiple dimensions when we're, you know, we've been well trained. The Torah is not just speaking to us on one level. It's, it's on many different dimensions. If our Zetas tells us that Amalek is Yetzirah, evil inclination, there's a spiritual dimension to this battle as well. And what does he say? When do you fight? Fight tomorrow. Why? Tomorrow will be much weaker. And how does Joshua win? He wins by delaying until tomorrow. Jacob waited. He held out and he won. And Joshua did the same. We have enemies. We go to war. We go to war against our Yetzirah, against the Malik. And our parsha, the beginning and the end, show us a way to do it. Be lazy. Oh, I'm so lazy. I don't, I don't want to deal with this. We're very good at that. We're very good. You just have to target it. Be lazy with the agenda of the Yetzirah. Be eager and full of alacrity with the agenda of the Almighty, with the agenda of your soul. But all you got to do, if you want to become 
an incredible, righteous person, successful person, productive person. All you have to do is say, I'm, I'm lazy in all the bad things and I'm eager and excited on all the good things. Just, just flip the areas where you tend to be lazy with the areas that you tend to be eager with. And that's it. That's all you have to do. Wait until tomorrow. Yetzirah says, yeah, great. Where do I sign? Tomorrow. Yes, but later. This is a magic solution for your most nefarious foe. So this is the fifth to last partial podcast of this cycle. We're getting close to the end. And we end with a question. IQ, an idea and a question. This is an interesting one. Comes courtesy of the Kli Yakar, which is one of the commentaries on the Torah. Chapter 23, verses 14 and 15 tell us a very interesting law. That when you go to war, in addition to all your weapons, you take with you a shovel. Why? You may think a shovel because you could use it to pummel the enemy. That's not what it says. When you're in the middle of war, and you have to use the facilities. What do you do? It says you take that shovel that you brought and you dig a hole and you cover your excrement. Why? Because Hashem your God is coming with you. He's walking with you. He's amidst your camp and he's there to save you from your enemy and to give your enemy before you. If God is in your camp, it should be holy. This is an amazing idea. Even in war, people are dying. It's violent. It's, it's crazy. It's chaotic. It's a situation that we can't even fathom. The Torah says it's a mitzvah to have a shovel. Why? So that when you go to the bathroom, you could cover your waist. Which is an incredible idea just, just to appreciate how the Torah demands that we maintain our, our dignity and our standing as a human. Even in the most difficult, chaotic situations conceivable. But the Talmud tells us that the, the Hebrew word for weapons of war in this verse is azeinecha. But those letters, if you just apply different vowels, different ukudot to them, could also be read as aznecha, which means your ears. And thus, the Talmud homiletically tells us that you should always have something to put inside your ears in case someone next to you is saying bad things, is saying Lashon Hara, is saying bad things about someone else. Take your ear and take your ear lobes and stick them inside your ear canal and cover up your ear so you don't hear the words, the bad words being said about your fellow man. And the Talmud adds, why do we have an earlobe? I remember reading an article, I mentioned this in the podcast. There's an article in Time Magazine where it said that all these vestigial organs they're not so vestigial. They're, they're not purposeless. There's actually a reason for all these organs. We thought uh, you don't need your appendix or you don't need the, um, uh, the, your tonsils. Actually, you do need all of them. And each one has a purpose that we've discovered. You know, the, the Darwin evolution theory says, well, you know, you used to be an ape some generations back, and you had some extra stuff, some extra hardware, you just didn't drop off yet, we're, we're still waiting, you know, there's eight plus billion people around, and everyone, everyone has an appendage, unless you had had it removed, but we're waiting for it to drop off, it's vestigial, it's leftovers. But it turns out there's actually nothing extra. There's nothing extra. Everything has a reason. With one exception, the article ended. There's one exception, and it's no one knows why we have earlobes. And I find it amazing because the Talmud says the reason why we have one organ, and that's the earlobes. And it says, based upon this verse, you take your earlobes and they're made out of cartilage. You can manipulate them. They're movable. 
And he's supposed to stick it all into your ear like this, which, of course, you cannot see because I'm on the podcast and there's no video here. Thank God. But I'm taking my earlobes and I'm sticking them inside my ear canal. And now I cannot hear you. I actually hear my voice from inside my brain with the bone conducting the sound. But that's what you're supposed to do. And it's based upon this verse. And I find it amazing that the scientists eventually came around to discovering the reason for every organ, with the exception of one, the Talmud tells us the reason why we have it. Namely, it's there for a spiritual purpose to stick inside your ear canal so that you don't hear any Lashon Hara. But this is an amazing thing. We have a verse that's talking about shovels. In wartime, comes along the Talmud and says, I'm going to offer a homiletic interpretation. And that's an odd thing because this is based upon a, a, a law. There's a law that's being derived over here. And the Kaliakar is asking her question. He says, wait a minute. Why does the Talmud, why does the Talmud take a verse and suspend, so to speak, the simple interpretation of the verse and it offers an alternative interpretation that seems to have absolutely no grounding in the verse, not with the things that come before it, not with the things that come after. It's talking about war and the conduct in war. And it's saying, Azenecha doesn't mean weapons, it means your ear, etc. There has to be a good reason why the Talmud does this. Now, it's a, this is a question which is more of a technical question, and I think it's important for us to just take the lesson the lesson of this idea, to, to invoke this idea that we have ears and those ears are very, very close to our brain. And what we hear inside our ears, what goes through our ear canals into our brain, it really matters. And there are things that we're not supposed to hear. And we have organs. We have parts of our body that are designed, based upon a verse in our parsha, they're designed to be flexible in order to help us in our quest. Maybe you tell the bearer of the gossip. I'm, I'm very interested in hearing what you have to say. Just just tell me tomorrow. Oh, we brought the two segments of the show together. Well, I appreciate your time today, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Here in Houston, Texas, I'm in the Torch Center, and it's all quiet here. It's actually late again. It's Wednesday afternoon. Please, God, we will release this podcast tonight, and I hope you enjoy it. And we're still running our survey, so if you haven't yet submitted your response, please do so at torchsurvey.com. And a link to that can be found in the podcast. Have a great day. Have a splendid day. Have a splendid week. Have an incredibly uplifting, invigorating, wholesome Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll once again gather together for the Parsha Podcast, where I will reveal to you what the theme of year eight of the Parsha Podcast will be with the help of the Almighty. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.